Why do kids play sports? Is it to go pro or earn a scholarship? Or are they looking for extraordinary experiences that they can build on for the rest of their lives? I want to help the next generation of parents and coaches keep youth sports about the kids. And I am so glad that you're joining me. And welcome back to the Kid First Sports Podcast. I am your Kid First host, Coach Dave Vasileros. Now that almost all of my four sons have graduated, I've only got one left at home, he's 16, I've started learning how to be a really good dad and coach. Uh, better late than never. So a good friend and guest on this podcast, Casey Waldron, he's on episode 17, he shared a thought with me recently, and it's changing how I look at youth sports and frankly, at parenting. And here's what he said. Soccer, and we'll substitute any youth sport, is primarily a problem-solving and decision-making exercise. Our job as coaches is to teach them skills and knowledge and then provide an environment where they can safely test them themselves. And success is when your kids grow their confidence in being able to solve problems and make decisions on their own. I love this thought, and it's changing how I'm approaching the season that's coming up, how I look at my own kids. It just rings true to me, and it's not confined to soccer or youth sports. In fact, today's guest drives this point home beautifully. Marcus Grindstaff, welcome to the Kid First Sports Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here today. This is going to be so fun. What you don't know is that Marcus is my first guest and he's actually the first human being I've ever talked to who coaches an all-girls underwater robotics team at a, a, a school in Sacramento. It's a St. Francis School in Sacramento. This team was recently crowned as world champions, and they won, and in, when I read about this, it warmed my soul. They won the Team Spirit Award just for good measure on top of being the champs, having the, the coolest, best, most effective underwater robot so obviously, this is a different kind of activity than we typically talk about, but at its center, it is exactly the same. Adults in a position to mentor and guide kids in a healthy and caring way. We're just talking about robots now. Marcus, dude, this is awesome. How did we meet by the way? My brother, right? Is that how yep. we first? Okay. And you Yeah, your Sean? brother introduced us. Okay. Yeah. How did you know Sean again? After I left the big corporate world, I started talking to some smaller companies. And when I did that, I, in healthcare, you run into okay. Sean if you do that enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, what happened. Seriously. And we hit it off. And so, yeah, so we chatted about all things healthcare technology. And then he was like, hey, I saw you guys that did so well in this competition. You got to talk to David. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Sean's a, he's a good one. He's a good one. Listen, did you, okay, you're an engineer. You have an awesome background we'll get into, but did you also play sports as a kid? Was that part of your life? I did play sports as a kid. Uh, I was soccer was actually my sport, nice. right winger. So it was it was great. Some of the foundations of teamwork, uh, learning to push through when things don't go your way. Mm. I think all of that stuff uh, comes from some of those initial roots in soccer. In fact, when I went to high school, I went to a Jesuit high school here in Sacramento. Oh, nice. State champs every year in soccer, and the, the tryouts were brutal. Two weeks, the first day you run seven miles, and you have to do it in forty nine minutes. It was it was all of that. Oh gosh, wow. And I was the last guy cut from the team, which is the worst because you have to go through the whole two weeks. <laughs> yeah, like, and yeah, then exactly. not make the team. Put right? your hand up the, after the but, first day. You're like, if you're going to cut me, yeah. just do it now. 
just do it now. But but what I learned from that is I went on to continue to play soccer. I didn't stop playing soccer because I really enjoyed soccer and was still friends with all the guys on the soccer team and it was all okay. And I think that was a really good lesson in just persistence and getting value out where the value needs to be. And the value for me was having fun playing soccer and staying in shape and so on and so forth, right? So. That's awesome. What a great story. What I love about it is almost everybody can speak the language of youth sports, right? Almost everybody. Because it, at least certainly when we grew up, it was a little less the way it is now, a little less elite, a little less kind of everyone's got to go be a pro. And even though the percentages aren't any better than they were 20, 30 years ago, somehow parents and adults think they are. And if they just pay more money, they'll get there. But either way, whatever. The point being, here you are, you're an engineer, you coach robotics, but you played soccer. That is awesome. That makes me happy. All right. So you mentioned about your career. You, you, you didn't always work in education. Why did you leave the big flashy corporate world and, and come work with kids? Yeah. A combination of, uh, of three things. I was, uh, I was fortunate to be able to leave that world, which is uh, a blessing for sure. Uh, we had a, a small company that we spun out of Intel and I grew into the chief operating officer role there and learned how to lead a team and learned a lot of that in that environment. So that was one piece. The second piece, I really enjoy teaching and education, even within the corporate environment. I was, it's, I would much rather spend two hours teaching a junior engineer how to do this themselves than doing it for them uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, frankly, it's more rewarding. They're totally on board on your team when you give them those skills and you mm. grow them. Um, but also, you run out of bandwidth. So if you're not doing it that way, like you can't keep doing everything. <laughs> so yeah. I learned that lesson pretty early when you work yeah. at a big company like Intel. There's great leaders around and they can teach you that. Uh, and then, uh, of course, my kids were high school age and both my son and my daughter uh, were uh, on robotics teams in their schools. So I got to translate some of that and frankly, get a little more hands on. I hadn't been able to do that in probably 25 years, like mm -hmm. actually pick up equipment and tools and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I jumped into that, it struck me how fast students can learn at that age both on the technical skills and on the leadership side of the house. The leadership side is super important to me. And so when I saw how much impact I could have there, that was a pretty straightforward decision. Yeah. Did you always love teaching or was that something that you developed later on through your career? Uh, I, I really enjoyed it right from the beginning. When I was really fortunate that I joined Intel in 1996, and Intel was growing really fast. We'd go around the horn and be like, who's been here more than two years? It was just like half of the Nobody. team, right? Yeah. And the rest were new, right? And so by the time you got to four or five years, you were like the old guy on the, around the <laughs> table, right? And, but what that meant was tremendous opportunity, even in those early days, to teach people, right? Because you'd have people coming straight out of school by the dozens and hundreds and thousands across Intel. And so being able to bring them in grow your team and really get them on board and signed up as a strong leader was really powerful even all the way back then. And then I also looked around Intel. Intel has just some outrageously smart people and the people that are bending the laws of physics kind of stuff, way smarter than me. But the ones that I really gravitated to were those that could take that bending the laws of physics and explain it to me. <laughs> mm. Because that's a pretty big gap and they needed to really understand me 
to be able to do that, right? And I think that from a, where did I see how to teach those kinds of things where there's obviously a gap like that was, was from those people who were Albert Einstein's twins and they were explaining that to me uh, two years out of college and didn't really understand yeah. the device yeah. physics of the world anyways. And that, and, and that is a superpower, certainly in, in my life, uh, people I've worked with and been around to take the complex and to simplify it and then to effectively communicate that to people. It requires such a mastery of the, of the subject matter. You can't just understand something complex and then explain it. You have to be a master of the complex to be able to then speak it in a sentence to someone who's brand new at it. I love that, that, that you gravitated towards not just super smart people, but the super smart people who then could connect with another person in a way and lift them up, right? And then you did that with your people. And now here you are with kids applying that exact same principle, right? And you're exactly right. These kids are sponges. Mm -hmm. They haven't gotten all the bad habits and all the self-image issues that we all have as we get older that block out our willingness to learn sometimes. These kids are like wide-eyed and teach me, right? It, yeah. It's amazing. I love that. Let's talk about your girls and your team now. First of all, how many girls are on the team? I have 26 girls on the team this year. Is that standard size? Do you have a, a number you aim for or is it come one, come all? That's about two and a half times the size of the normal team in our league. <laughs> when we started this, we put a mission together and a vision, just like we would in a, a small company. And I'm a startup corporate guy, so I didn't put a big process around it and mm -hmm. get it approved and all that. But our vision is to inspire girls to use technology and leadership skills to improve the world. Mm. And so that's what we're going after. Our mission, a little more tactically how we do that, is discover engineers, develop engineering skills, develop leadership skills, build confidence, and lead. And that's very specific to the challenge of girls in STEM. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Yeah. But building confidence and discovering engineers specifically. So when I see girls come in ninth grade, I also coach a boys team. I don't spend near as much time with the boys team. And just to be clear, the competition is co-ed. We happen to have an all-boys high school and an all-girls high school, right? And I coach okay. both of them. When the boys come in, a lot of them have some experience. They're like, hey, I want to be an engineer. And that's great. Very few girls come in that way. Hmm. I don't know why. That's <laughs> before I get a hold of them, right? Very few of them come in that way. So we start with discovering engineers. And the only way we can discover who really wants to be an engineer is by accepting everybody because they don't know yet. Right. right? And so to so. answer your question, we accept everybody that wants yep. to be part of the program, be part of the program. We set some expectations. Here are the attendance expectations. Here's the level of effort, so on and so forth. But we set no expectations about experience, about background, yeah. about any of that. And to be honest, a lot of my best engineers who've gone off to UC San Diego Electrical Engineering, ASU Honors Program, Cal Poly, a whole bunch of Cal Poly, they, they had no idea that this is what they yeah. wanted to do, right? But after three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks in the program, it became their primary extracurricular activity. And to give you an idea of the commitment. Yeah, I was just about to ask, yeah. Yeah, the commitment for this program, we start in late August and we go through June. So it's a 10 months of the year program. Whoa. After school, not in school, after school. Every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. What? <laughs> yes. So these 26 girls commit to every Saturday 
from the end of August to the end of June. That's the culture we have. It's all self-reinforcing. I don't have to force it, right? It's all self-reinforcing culture. It's a large part of our performance. We'll talk about that too. Success, success is not the goal. Culture is the goal. Success is a result. But the way we drive that program is through self-reinforcing culture. And that's the level of commitment that we get from the girls coming into the program. It's important that we don't have people who are coming just to hang out, right? And just for social hour. Yep. Like this yep. is a competitive team. Yep. And rather than tryouts or like cutting people or whatever, the way we do that is just keep raising the expectation until we mm. get to the commitment level we're looking for. And I can mm -hmm. teach anybody to engineer. Like that's yeah. just a learning, learning curve, right? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of commitment. Now, the interesting thing is I sit there, my immediate reaction is, wow, that's a lot of time. And then I think about high school soccer. I mean, that's the, what I have experience with or wrestling. You name the high school sport and it's a shorter time. But my kids started, I think, the second week of July, doing early morning for probably two or three hours a day. And then all the way through the first week of October, second week of October, every single day after school for hours. So so really, yeah. it's probably about the same. It's just spread out over, over time. That's yep. amazing. So 26 girls, it's got to be like logistics issues, trying to manage 26 <laughs> high school high girls, school girls. a brand new thing. Yeah. How, how do you deal with that? So I've got four coaches, so including myself. Mm -hmm. So we have four coaches, and then I've got a cadre of parents that help out. I have, yep. I'll call it non-technical coaches, helping out mm -hmm. with logistics and operations. With that level of commitment and the impact on where girls are going to go to college and potentially their career and so forth, we're very much about creating a community around robotics, much like you would sports, right? And so we have a parent's intro night at the beginning. We have parent demo day. We have expectations for parents to help out. Now, can they all do it? No, of course not. They all have different personal situations. But I'll give an example. When you're there nine to four on Saturdays, it's important that you feed the girls it's logistically complicated, frankly, for everybody to bring their own because they'll forget mm. and they'll have to leave and all that stuff. And so we provide the food. And mm. I have a parent that coordinates all of that. And the expectation is every family brings one meal for all 26 kids during the year. And some families will do too. And it's great, but I don't have to deal with any of it. I have a yeah. phenomenal parent <laughs> that just makes sure that at yeah. noon every Saturday, there's food there and it meets yeah. our vegan requirements and it meets our allergy requirements and it meets all that stuff. <laughs> we travel. There's only two competitions. That's the other thing that's fairly unique about this. There is a regional competition in April mm -hmm. and it's 15 minute mission run. So they work for seven months for a 15 minute competition. And then and there's another is, one. I'm sorry. Regional is like the United States or it's the Western States or it's California or what? Okay, Northern so, California. Okay. So that's in Monterey. Got yeah. It. And then if you win in Monterey, for our case, if you win in Monterey, you go to the world championships, which are usually in the U.S. or Canada, but they move around. Mm -hmm. And that's in June. So we have those two trips. Same thing. I have a parent coordinator for each of those trips. Right. And they volunteer to do all the logistics work to make sure everybody gets there. We all get fed. The hotels are set, like all that kind of stuff. And then the other piece is my executive leadership team. So these are high school students. Like they can run a team. And so I have an executive leadership team. It's three people. Uh, it's my three best leaders. So it's not even necessarily my three most technical people. It's my three best leaders. Uh, they are invited onto the executive leadership team. So it's an invitation position by the coaches. 
but they also have to consider the implications of being on the executive leadership team and they have to accept that responsibility. And specifically, their responsibility is the overall success of the program. So they may have a functional role like mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, like they still wanna do stuff, right? But that is second to their primary responsibility and they have to accept that trade-off. And their primary responsibility is overall success of the program. And overall success of the program is different than overall success of the team because the program lives over years and eventually decades, right? And the team turns over every four years because they're high school students. So they're looking at, and especially because they're seniors, they're looking at how do we create legacy going forward for this team from my senior year. So whether that's recruiting, whether it's public relations, whether it's fundraising, whether it's changing or improving our processes, like whatever it is, that comes before their mechanical engineering work. And their mantra is success through others. Like yeah. th they are responsible for succeeding through the rest of the team. And if at the end of the year, they didn't design one thing, that's fine. Yeah. If at the end of the year, they didn't help the more junior members become more senior members, that's not fine. Right. And yeah, they're that, specifically accepting that responsibility. Okay. So the metrics of success there are very different. And I, and in my head, as you're talking, I'm constantly comparing with sports, right? Just a typical high school sports program. It, we would have like captains mm -hmm. and captains often are voted on by the players, but sometimes they're chosen by the coach. Certainly in my experience, I'm not sure that it's been laid out in such a way like you just described. Here is your duty as a captain. You're responsible for how this program works next year and the year after. That's a big thought, we'll say, mm -hmm. for a high school kid who can barely see past for lunch, right? What's lunch? <laughs> I don't know. But that's a really big thought. Do you teach them ahead of time what the expectations are and they get a chance to think about it? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the way it is. Yeah, because some of them might say, yeah, that might be too big for me. Right. If it's too mm -hmm. big for me, I need to do something else. But what an insight. I've never met someone who's like, nah, I don't want to be captain. <laughs> like, I'm sure <laughs> right. there are those. I know there are those people, certainly, who may be a little more yep. introverted and maybe not so comfortable as a leader. But most of the time, they're like, yeah, I'm captain. And it's a good thing and put it on their chest. But to say, hey, this is what that means. And yeah, you're going to have your own technical responsibility, but you are going to look back at the end of your season, we'll call it a season, at the end of your year. And you're going to measure success by how well did you help the younger kids? That's awesome. I want to steal that and put it straight into my soccer team. It's beautiful. Now, when your girls come into the program, whether they're the leaders, the freshmen, whoever it is, do they know what to expect from you as a coach? Has that already been passed down? Is that part of what attracts them to join in the first place? Yeah, I think it's a two-step. Most of our students join as freshmen or sophomores. So they join as freshmen. They come in the way kind of high school, we're called an academic team. The way academic teams work, you come into high school, the first three or four weeks, you're just overwhelmed. Like, <laughs> you're just overwhelmed. And especially true, this is, happens to be a private school, especially true at a private school because we pull from a gigantic geographic area. And so you probably don't know very many people. Okay. Unlike a public school where you came in with your friends, right? Yep. <laughs> We don't do anything for the first three or four weeks. We're like, just figure out where the bathroom is and who, something, meet somebody, whatever. <laughs> How to use your Chromebook, all that stuff. About four weeks in, we have an information session. And the, the freshmen that come have an interest 
because they saw an announcement about robotics and they're like, hey, that sounds really interesting. I want to come. Then we get, so we get some as freshmen, then we get a bunch of sophomores because they met somebody in robotics when they were a freshman and it's a social attraction to the program, Got right? It. And both of those are great methods to, to get into the program. At that point, when they join the program, frankly, no, they don't know what to expect, whether they're freshmen or sophomores, right? Mm -hmm. They know that there's a significant time commitment. We do have a six-week new student program that runs in parallel. So the, the returning students will continue to do their new robot design, and the new students will actually join in October. They join a little bit late, and they spend six weeks doing a new student project. And there are two objectives, uh, or three, I guess. One is to teach some very basic engineering skills, right? How do you do buoyancy? How do you make a robot move through the water? This kind of stuff. Uh, the second one is to give them uh, an opportunity to test the commitment level and see if they really want to do that. And the third one is to see if they like it, right? And it's totally fine. So we're trying to discover who wants to be an engineer. Somebody comes in, they spend the six weeks, they go, yeah, it was fun, but not really for me. I think I'm more of a biologist. Sweet, mm -hmm. go do that. I got no problem with that. I'm not yeah. trying to make everybody into an engineer. What I want to like do- like a handful, I'm sorry, is that like a handful a year that, um, that it's, kind of don't want to go forward? It's between, of the new students that join, it's between 30 and 50%. Oh, it's that many, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely, absolutely. And that's great, I, mean, I think it's fantastic. Like just gave it a shot and it's, a better it's not time. for them. Yeah, how about that instead of junior year in college when you think you're gonna be, you <laughs> wanna be an engineer and you're like, yeah, I hate this. Exactly, and, and we put them in hands on day one. Like day one, it's, you're gonna build a robot, here's some PVC pipe, here's, here's some thrusters, here's some wires, and we'll start giving you clues about how to do that, but let you discover it yourself. So that's how people get in. And then once they've joined, we do. We sit down and set expectations about, here's what I expect from you. And here's what you can expect from the coaches. And importantly, here's what you can expect from the executive leadership team, mm -hmm. right? I want you to go to them first. Like, don't come and ask me how to use the drill press. Go ask Lauren how to use the drill press. Mm -hmm. If she looks at what you're trying to do and she doesn't know how to do it safely, she'll come to me, right? Or to Maurice or one of the other coaches. So that gives those older girls the opportunity to teach safety, to teach processes, to know their limits. And I didn't invent all of this stuff, right? right? Corporate America works this way, but I'm also a scoutmaster and scouts works this way. So it's, I didn't invent any of it and none of us should have to invent this stuff. <laughs> I'm just applying it to robot, high school robotics yeah. girls. Yeah, and as we talked about in the beginning, problem solving and decision-making, right? It, as parents, now I'm on the end cycle of parenting kids in my house. And I joke a little, but I wish when I was younger, as a younger dad, I had been less concerned about making sure everyone did everything they were supposed to the way they were supposed to, and more concerned about giving them an environment to solve the problem and make decisions and then hold accountability. And for you, it's less you having to hold them accountable and more the work you're doing is holding you accountable, right? Mm -hmm. like if you if the thing fails that you're working on, there's the accountability. Okay, and we'll and I want to talk about how you deal with failures in this environment as well, but. But that concept, hey, Laura, it was Lauren, as mm -hmm. the, one, of the cap, uh, one of the leaders, she's going to walk out being pre more prepared to manage than most people who graduate with an MBA. Unless mm -hmm. they have done actual hands-on management in their careers, it's high school to college to 
to graduate school to, oh, now I know how to lead. Really? This is beautiful. <laughs> this is, it's beautiful. It's beautiful the way you're yeah. doing this. In fact, let's get into some of the challenges for, and you mentioned it a little bit before, specifically to girls in STEM. This is something that you've had to try to work to overcome and manage and be flexible around. And I'm not holding you to this, by the way. I'm not going, you're not like a behavioral scientist or psychologist <laughs> or anything like that. Neither of us are. We're just guys talking. But given your experience, there's a couple of things going on that's beyond just, oh, girls don't like it. Or, well, you know, they just don't do it. Or they, if they wanted to do it, they'd do it. Um, tell me some of these principles that you've observed that are absolutely at play here when you're working with these girls. Sure. I think there's four principles from a coaching perspective run the team by, and two of them are are fairly specific to girls, and I shouldn't say specific to girls, different for girls than for different boys. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about those. The first one is attribution. It's called attribution theory. That's like the sociology name for it. But the way I understand it best as a guy, and the way I understand it best, and I've been able to explain it to, to, to others best, is women and girls as a generalization. And so when, let me back up. When we look at the workforce, we have a significant imbalance in female engineers in the population relative to the mm -hmm. general population. We also have an imbalance even relative to the number of women and girls that have gotten engineering degrees that go into engineering fields and stay in those engineering fields. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, there's a, probably a dozen reasons. And the industry has put an incredible amount of effort behind and money behind recruiting, behind removing bias in the hiring process, and th those things probably still exist at some level, but not at the level that we're seeing the imbalance in the result. Okay. So what's misaligned? And what's misaligned? Yeah, that's right. We've got 15% of the workforce in engineering is women. Yep. So we don't have a, if it should be closer to half, we don't have a 60% problem <laughs> in bias in the hiring yep. process. Yeah. And not minimizing that exists. I think that's really important, but it's not that big of a problem in my experience. So there are many other characteristics at play. One of those, which I think comes out really strongly in high school, and that's such a pivotal time for kids in every aspect oh, yeah. of what they do, oh, right? Yeah. Um, it's such a formative time. One of those, and there's tons of data on this, is something called attribution theory. As a generalization, women will tend to internalize failure, hmm. and guys will tend to externalize failure. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know if it's the way we raise kids before high school. I don't know if it's a DNA. Nothing I can do about that. When I see them in ninth grade, my observation matches the, the data in the study. And so what does that mean? What does internalizing failure mean versus externalizing failure? So internalizing failure, if you and your wife go to Ikea and you buy the same piece of furniture, you bring it home and you go in your room, she goes in another room, and you sit there and put the furniture together. Everybody struggles to put Ikea furniture together. Like, oh, it's yeah. a thing, right? It's a meme for a reason, right? And you guys both go through that, and you both struggle to put the furniture together. Her tendency will be to say, I'm not smart enough to figure out how to put this furniture together. I'm not good at putting this furniture together. This is not for me. I should find somebody else who knows how to do this. Your tendency, as a generalization, will tend to be, who wrote these terrible instructions? <laughs> How come this thing is built this way? This is stupid, right? <laughs> so what just happened right there? You externalized the failure and made it somebody else's fault or like the laws of physics fault or something else, right? 
whereas she took it as an internalization of her ability. Mm. Why is that a problem in engineering? Engineering is the process of failing over and over and over until the thing you're building is just barely good enough to ship it, but still not very good. There's no engineer who's released a product who's like, I love it, it's perfect. Like, it doesn't happen. It's always, I have to ship it because we got to get some revenue, but there's still all these things wrong with it. So when you think about 10 failures a day, 30 failures a day, you can see how that's going to drive a different response when that's driving your emotional state as you go through this. So we spend a lot of time talking about it. And huge victories. One of my double E uh, student went into electrical engineering last year. Her name's Nora. She ended up at UC San Diego, double E, full ride, like brilliant student. At the end, we have a, a party at the end of the year. And she said, the most important thing to me was that I learned that I can learn through failing. That is so powerful, especially for girls. So sometimes we get the boys team and the girls team together to do some work. We talk about the fact that boys aren't doing that to themselves. <laughs> and in fact, I would say sometimes I need to pull a boy aside when there's some kind of issue, I'll call it a failure or whatever, mm -hmm. and encourage them to do a little more introspection. Because I think we're all like that a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not right or wrong. It's different. And if you're aware of the differences, then you can navigate yourself through those differences when you get into co-ed situations, into college, into the real world of engineering and so forth. So that's an example of something that we spend time on that is specific to the all-girls education. And if you look at the greater statistics clearly show that in high school at this particular age, an all-girls education, there's arguments about the percentage, but substantially more girls going into STEM careers from all girls high school education than yeah. from co-ed education. So anyway, yeah. that's one yeah, of the no, things that we, we do. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And I love that you've applied that in a way that the kids can grasp onto, right? It's don't fear failure. So I teach four, what I call the heart lessons and in, in this podcast and, and when I coach, and these are four lessons that I believe kids of today need to truly, truly have understood and been, and grasped in order to go on to learn the life lessons like discipline and hard work and engineering and you name it, all the things we want to, because if underneath they don't have the confidence and they don't see themselves as learners and they don't disassociate themselves with the mistake or the failure, they're never going to really learn because they're putting the, these obstacles in the way. And heart lesson number two is I don't fear mistakes. I don't fear mistakes. And the corollary as an athlete is I can play with, run with, wrestle with, compete with joy because I don't fear mistakes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's necessarily the same kind of level of, of I will use that word joy in engineering, but there certainly must be a, an element of freedom, mm -hmm. a freedom to try, freedom to get back on the horse that you feel that when you understand that this process is literally driven by mistakes and it doesn't mm -hmm. say anything about you personally or your intellect or your skills. It simply says opportunity to learn. Great. Let's learn. That's it's right. beautiful. Yeah. It's very powerful. And the harder the problem, the more mistakes. That's just almost direct yeah. correlation. No, one, of the thing, one of the things that I learned in the corporate space and, and apply here is you have to explicitly tell people as their leader or their manager, I will not get upset with you as a result of mistakes, as long as you have good intent. Mm 
That's the only thing I'm holding you to is good intent, the good of the team. I will not be upset with you about a mistake. And because that's not necessarily obvious to everybody, and it takes a long time for them to observe that behavior from you as the coach or the leader. So just be explicit about it. I will not be upset with you if you make a mistake as long as you had good intent. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and how many people, by the way, how many people who come in and work for you, for example, come from an area where that wasn't true? So yeah, you're going to have to tell them that, you're going to have to model that, and then you're going to have to reinforce it because most people, and I'll say kids too, most kids, most adults have never had a coach or a manager who could say that to them, who did say that and then mean it, right? Yep. We use the term punitive substituting. You're playing in the right wing. It's an important game. You get a ball, you drive to the end, and you miss the cross in the last few minutes and blah, blah, blah. Coach yanks you because you blew it. That is yep. the equivalent of what happens in most of our work lives. <laughs> no, go ahead. You try, you fail, you get punished. Yeah, it's funny. I, when I was uh, the chief operating officer at Care Innovations, I had my software team and we had a major client, like a make or break it kind of client. And we were three or four months behind on mm -hmm. delivery. And my VP of engineering, we had a review. What's the new schedule going to look like? How are we going to get this done? Like customers frustrated, all of that. And he came to me and he said, in my last company, my boss would have been yelling at me up one side and down the other because we were late and we were having trouble with this. And I looked at him and I said, will that help us get on schedule? Because if it will, I'm happy to yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, <laughs> then I'm not going to yell at you. And, but that's the point. It's not going to help what I really need to do as the coach, and then now as my ELT, executive leadership team, is role model how to help. And along those lines, you get two runs of competition. And our first run last year was well below our expectations. <laughs> Can I just clarify uh, really quick? A yeah. run means you're given a set of tasks to perform with the robot in a certain setting, and you have to perform the tasks to satisfaction. Is that about right? That's exactly right. That's exactly. Okay. And you're given two tries mm -hmm. and they take the highest score. And so the first run was well below our expectations. And we'd practice this and nailed it. And then you get into competition and mm -hmm. same in sports, like something happens and oh, yeah. you don't do well. And so the team comes out of the competition venue and they're dejected. They've spent seven months getting ready for this. Yep. And last year's CEO getting a little bit worked up about this. And I pulled her aside and I said, look, you have one job, one and it's to calm everybody down. That's it. You can't solve this problem, right? You can't solve it. They can solve it, but you have one job, calm them down. And with students this age and with sports kids this age, you can be very direct about that stuff. There's no question about the balance of uh, experience and power, like there, there just isn't. And I told her, your job is to go calm these kids down so that in an hour, their head's back in the game, and they can go do that. And sports coaches do that all the time. All the time. But you can give that to the captain. And you can say, look, I'm not even going to go to the meeting. You're going to take them over in the corner. You're going to go do this. I'm going to mm -hmm. stand in earshot so I can make sure it doesn't go south. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to let you do that. And so we spend a lot of time like on those kinds of activities. 
you will be amazed what your kids can do from a leadership perspective if you set the expectation and give them clear instruction. And then she walked away from that understanding situational leadership. Like this is all about situational leadership. My job right this minute is to do this thing and that's it. Yeah. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up because of the four principles we talked about, one is attribution theories, understanding how to empower them to embrace mistake making and not personalize it, right? Embrace mm -hmm. it, not personalize it. The second one you just mentioned is situational leadership in a moment of crisis or challenge or whatever it is. What is my, what is each person's role, right? Not mm -hmm. just the CEO, because then the CEO had help from the COO and I'm sure had help from others that brought them together and said, how do we approach this and work as a team to, to deal with that particular issue? Remember, we're talking about underwater robotics, people. This means there's metal and wiring and engineering, all this stuff in water. So we know what happens when water mixes with electronics improperly. S certainly that must happen with you guys. And then how is that dealt with? Like, how do they respond? Yeah, absolutely. So every year, at least once, we'll flood the robot. Like, it happens. Either screw didn't get put in tight enough, somebody forgot to put the plug in, whatever the case is. And the reality is you spend the whole season getting the team ready for those kinds of situations, whether it's flooding the robot, a bad run in the pool, whatever it is. You spend the whole season getting the team ready for that. And at the end of the day, that's your culture. That's your culture coming through, which you've built. You cannot react to a crisis in the crisis. You have to be prepared for that. And, and that comes back to culture. Now, Peter hold Drucker. On, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. I think I heard this. What they are doing is preparing for seven months to deal with an unforeseen challenge. That's what they're doing. I would have thought that for seven months they're preparing to win the tournament, right? <laughs> win the competition. Is that, do you explicitly teach the difference between those two objectives? We do. We explicitly talk about the culture we're trying to build and the behaviors we're trying to build in the context of no plan goes according to plan or survives first contact with the enemy, right? Like nothing. We do underwater robotics explicitly because it's difficult, <laughs> explicitly because these things will happen and because those become learning experiences. If you take the scouting parallel is you're out in the middle of the woods and you forgot the pancake batter, like what are we going to do? And if I'm in my house, I just eat tacos instead. The, the, <laughs> those situations are going to happen. Just like in a company, you're going to have a problem. You need to have prepared the team for problems, not that problem, <laughs> but for how to deal with problems well ahead of time. And again, a lot of that becomes your culture, right? And, and Peter Drucker, and I firmly believe this, apparently said, that's uh, one of these quotes mm -hmm. that nobody's sure, but apparently said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And that's right, because your strategy may have to change when you encounter unforeseen obstacle, but your culture can't change by then. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that crisis moment and the situational leadership, but the foundation of that is all poured for seven months by the time yep. we get to those moments. When we think about how does that lay out to an individual and the individual leaders on the team, that prior to situational leadership, even I would say a servant leadership, and we start with that premise. Mm -hmm. 
So leadership's not appointed, it's earned. You can appoint it all you want. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yep. The and position is appointed, but the power is earned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And leadership is not a position of authority. It's not an appointed position of power. It's an obligation. And we teach that. This is a position of obligation first. That's a servant leadership approach, right? In order to do that, you have to hold the needs and interests of your team members above those of yourself as a leader. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you're giving up on being successful. In fact, it's the opposite, but it's a second order effect. So the success is a second order effect of caring about your people first and then worrying about yourself later. So leaders eat last. If you guys are doing drills and your people need help with the drills as the captain, you go help them with the drills. If that means you have to go home and do your own drills, that's what being a leader is. Yeah. You have to put yeah. in an extra two hours. So be it. That's your problem. You are choosing to be the leader. And so we start with servant leadership. And what that does is it ensures that all of the members of the team understand that when it gets dicey, that those leaders have the members' interests at heart, not their own. It, it virtually eliminates blaming. It virtually eliminates finger pointing. That stuff just goes away because the leaders won't accept it. So the rest of the team won't do it. And that servant leadership is the, is the foundation of that. Then we talk about situational leadership. Okay. Situational leadership is I have to act differently depending on the situation that I find myself in, who I'm surrounded by, what other tools I have with me. There are several sort of high-level leadership styles. Probably the most common are consultative. So get some input, make a decision. Consensus, more or less voting, get everybody's input, kind of vote. Command and control, none of them are wrong. People will look at it and go, command and control is wrong. Hold on. Command and control is not wrong if you're trying to take a hill in war and it's not going right. Command and control is right, but you don't get to exercise command and control if you haven't already built the leadership position, if you haven't used collaborative decision-making, if you haven't used consensus decision-making, if you haven't been a servant leader, because they're just going to tell you no. <laughs> you haven't earned trust, right? If you haven't earned the trust of your exactly team right. or of your followers, or of the people you're responsible for in the moment when you lay the law down, the response might be, wait, who's this guy? Does he care about me? Is this about him or me? Is this about her right. or, or about me? Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and then when it gets dicey, your whole team will line right up and yep. you won't have to tell them. You won't have to force them. In fact, if it's really wonderful, they'll step out in front of you as yeah. a leader. So that's how we prepare for those moments when it doesn't go right. Quick story about that. At the World Championships, there was a team that, this is one of my proudest moments, there was a team that was a, a co-ed team. Most, almost all the teams are co-ed. So it was a co-ed team. And the CEO of that team, I forget his name, it was a guy, they were right neck and neck with us in terms of performance. And their second pool run wasn't as good as they had hoped. And after that pool run, he came over to our CEO. They met because they're competitive, but also yeah, interested peers, in the same yeah. stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, I'm so frustrated. Named one of his team members, Billy, didn't plug in the plug for the buoyancy engine. And that lost us 35 points. And I think we may not take first place because of that. Yeah. And my leader, Morgan, turned to him and said, leaders don't act like that and walked away. 
That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. That's not how you act. Because that's a girl who knows the complex, right? She understands her subject matter. She has put in the time to understand that leadership is complex. And at the end of it, in the moment, she was able to share it in a very simple way to another person. That's what we talked about in the beginning, right? The people who can understand complexity but express it simply and powerfully, that is not how leaders act. She didn't go into a big, long, hey, let me tell you about servant leadership. Let me tell you about... <laughs> she didn't have to, right? But nope. I guarantee you that individual mm -hmm. got the message. And bravo, coach, bravo, because while they are building and sustaining the culture, you set it up. You mm -hmm. said, here's the expectations. Here are the things that matter. We're doing this together. I can guarantee you, Nora and Lauren and who was the CEO this time that you were just mentioning? Morgan. Morgan. When they run into you in 10 years, they're going to come up and be like, coach. I don't know if they call you coach, but if they did, coach, so awesome to see you. Let me tell you about my career. Let me tell you about the teams I'm leading. Let me tell you about the choices I'm making where the time you spent with us, the things you taught us have mattered. Is there any better feeling than that? Nope. Nope. And what you asked me when we started why I did this. That's why I did it. Yep. Yep. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. I know we didn't get to talk about the one principle, but I'll maybe leave a little bit in the, in the show notes. But uh, I feel like we just ended on the perfect point. Why do coaches coach? Why should coaches coach? Like we just said because we want to see our kids better decision makers, better problem solvers, more confident, and they know how to lead in the proper way. And because we love them, because we love the kids, let's be honest, in the, all yep. the most positive and appropriate ways, we love the kids. And um, that's why we coach. That's why I coach. That's why you coach. And it's wonderful. And that's why I do this podcast. It's a call and an invitation to the adults involved with youth sports. And I'll throw that out to teachers and academic teams and anyone working with these kids to put the kids first. You coach them in a kid first way, not in a your ego first way, not in a save my job way, not in a I want to be in the headlines way. None of that. It's when Morgan says, that's not how leaders lead. That's why you coach. It's beautiful. If you agree, if you think this is something that you should be seeing more in our kids and our youth sports activities and our schools, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, share it with your friends, your family, your coaches, your teachers, whoever it is who you think might need to hear this message. I love it. Thanks again, Marcus. This has been an honor. This is Dave with Kid First Sports Podcast. I'm out. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. Share it with all your friends. Tune in for new episodes as we grow this movement to keep youth sports about the kids. 